Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from A Knife in My Back, Amy Brewster Mystery Series Book 1, written by Sam Merwin, Jr. In the first outing of Amelia Winslow Brewster, Amy to her friends, the elephantine, cigar-smoking, blue-blooded genius of a detective finds herself in a battle of wits with an unknown killer who has neatly framed her nephew. You'll howl with delight as the icon-toppling Amy tackles stuffed shirts, law enforcement, gargantuan gourmet meals, and crime with equal aplomb. This is another rollicking Amy Brewster classic from the glory days of the 1940s. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from A Knife in My Back. Chapter 4 For a few stunned seconds, Chris couldn't believe the girl's body was real. Surely, no one person could shed so much blood. It looked more likely that a can of paint had fallen in some mysterious fashion on the girl and knocked her cold. But his eyes kept returning to the haft of the knife protruding from her back. It hadn't been paint. It was then that Chris Horton yelled in sheer terror. The hair on the back of his neck was standing straight out. The idea of violent death in this staidly, opulent Boston mansion was more than frightening. It was almost obscene. His cry brought the quick sounds of approaching footsteps almost before its echo faded, and in a matter of seconds, Gordon appeared in the doorway. For a moment, he looked puzzled as he sought the source and cause of this unseemly disturbance in his domain. His eyes rested on those of his master, then followed their gaze to the corpse. He swayed a little as if someone had slipped a powder into his ginger ale. Then he closed his eyes and shook his head, as if to toss away this dreadful illusion. Finally, when he saw that this process was unavailing, his expression became one of sadness, and he looked at Chris reproachfully. "'Pardon me, sir,' he said, once more the unruffled head servant but don't you think it would be a wise idea to get the young lady out of here? I'll see to having the rug cleaned as soon as it is done. Chris stifled a semi-hysterical impulse to burst out laughing. The words and the thought that lay behind them were so utterly typical of Gordon, the butler gave not a passing thought to the law. He cared only for the house and its residents that he had looked after for so many years. The status quo was there to be maintained at all costs, come murder or whatever. I'm sorry, said Chris, and he almost meant it. I didn't kill her. I hardly had time. You can see for yourself that her blood is already coagulating. The words sounded callous, and he neither wanted nor intended to be callous. But the girl, lying there dead, did look oddly like an upset store window dummy with paint spilled over it. Yes, sir, said Gordon dubiously. It does seem unlikely, sir. Get out of here said Chris, snapping out of his rigor vitus. Call Weddington and tell him about it. She's his secretary. Then call the police. Whether you approve or not, this is murder. As the butler moved silently toward the hall telephone to fulfill these orders, heavier footsteps sounded, and Chris's brother Joe appeared in the doorway, carrying the inevitable amber-filled glass in his hand. Not as conventionally handsome as Chris, Joe, despite his irregularity of feature, conveyed an impression of vital good looks. His eyes, slightly bloodshot, still displayed a lively curiosity in what went on around him, 
and his personality was magnetic. He moved more easily than his banker brother, with a suggestion of reckless poise in his every motion. His expression conveyed a what-the-hell-goes-on interest. I heard you howling, he said to Chris, then stopped short as he saw the body. For Christ's sake! I didn't kill her, Chris repeated. She was like that when I came in. It's Miss Parker, Weddington's secretary. Gordon is calling the police about it now. Joe Horton listened without saying a word. Then he stepped to a small drum table and put his glass down. His hand shook slightly, causing him to spill some of the liquor on the polished mahogany. He pulled a white handkerchief from his hip pocket and carefully wiped his fingers with it. Then, after stuffing it away, he pulled a cigarette out and lit it abstractedly, without taking his eyes from the corpse. What in hell was she doing here? he asked abruptly. How would I know? said Chris. I didn't invite her. As he spoke, he looked keenly at his brother. For the first time, it occurred to him that Joe might have done it. He was capable of violent passion when roused, and he had been in the house as far as Chris knew. But Joe's face remained unusually inscrutable. Poor Lolly, he said softly. Chris looked at him in surprise. I didn't know you knew her, he said. The younger brother lifted his eyes from the thing on the carpet to favor Chris with a faint smile. There are a hell of a lot of things outside of banking that you don't know, Chris, he said. He looked back at the body before going on. I knew Lolly Parker pretty well. She was that rarest of items, a girl without much background and no money who was absolutely sure of herself. She was willing to gamble all the way if she thought it would get her anything she wanted. She believed in full value for value received. Chris just looked at his brother, unable to think of a thing to say. It had been a pretty long speech for Joe, who tended to be laconic with words. The younger man was obviously far more disturbed and unhappy than he was allowing himself to show. Joe Horton appeared to misread his brother's silence as disapproving. His head came up in a familiar, defiant gaze, and he began to talk almost fiercely. And what the hell is wrong with that? he asked rhetorically. You and Weddington have kept the family purse strings drawn pretty tight. If I liked her and found out that she could get old Weddington to loosen up a little and she didn't mind giving me a lift, well... He turned back to the table, lifted his glass abruptly, and drained it dry without a tremor. Chris, his thoughts a maelstrom, was still staring at him as if he were a stranger when the front doorbell rang loudly. A moment later, a party of officials and the regular officer on the beat came stamping in. A ruddy, good-looking young man with a quietly competent air took over. Only the crow's feet clustered at the corners of his level blue eyes and his air of quiet competence based on obvious experience suggested that he was older than his appearance. He looked and moved almost like a college athlete, and his well-tailored blue worsted suit added to the illusion. He glanced briefly at the body, then looked at the brothers. Anybody touch her since she was found? he asked briskly. Chris and Joe both shook their heads, and the detective returned his attention to the corpse. He bent over the body and grunted slightly. And the Emmy may not give me a hundred percent, he said, but I'll lay five to one that sticker stabbed her square in the center of the ticker. She went out like a light. Chris felt a sudden queasiness just under his diaphragm. He glanced at Joe and saw that his brother's alcoholic flush had faded to a pale green. There was something about the callousness of the detective. Well, said the good-looking detective, brushing his hands together briskly as though that were that. We'd better get the hell out of here and give the boys a chance to do their stuff. He paused and looked directly at Chris. By the way, my name is Pat Rayburn. I'm in charge of this case. 
Is there somewhere else we can settle down in this blasted mausoleum? Feeling a trifle resentful at the way in which the detective referred to the old house, Chris led the way to the elevator, ushered them from it into the large living room on the second floor. It was a charming room, as tastefully Victorian as the Newton mansion had been ugly. Joe, who had not forgotten his glass, wasted no time in refilling it from a graceful carafe that stood with others on the small table between the two tall windows at the front of the room. He lifted an inviting eyebrow at the detective, but Rayburn shook his head. Later, maybe, the detective said quietly. He stood just inside the door, hands in his pockets, looking at them. Now let's have it. Who was she? How did she get here? Who killed her and why? I can answer the first, said Chris. He gave the detective her name and occupation. But as for the others, I'm sorry to say I have no information to give you. Okay, if that's how it is, said Rayburn. You might give me an idea of what you did this afternoon. He listened closely while Chris gave a chronological, if not over-detailed account of his trip to Newton for the paperweights, nodded at its conclusion. We'll check, of course, he said, nodding curtly. If the garage times it right and the Emmy comes up with facts instead of his usual guess, you haven't a thing to worry about, Mr. Horton. He paused, turned to the younger brother. What about you now, Joe? he asked. I'm out on a limb a mile, Pat, said Joe Horton, and Chris discovered his eyes were goggling. Neither Joe nor the detective had revealed any sort of previous acquaintanceship by so much as the flicker of an eyelash. But then, as Joe had said earlier, there were a hell of a lot of things Chris didn't know. He began to believe it. Okay, give, kid, said Rayburn unemotionally. You're among friends. You'll have to talk anyway, and I won't pull any fast ones. Am I glad you were assigned to this case, Pat, said Joe. I damn near fainted from relief when I saw you walk in. And don't be too glad, Joe, said the detective. I won't pull any punches either. We aren't out on a bender together now. I wouldn't want you to burn for this, but if you did it, you'll fry. You'd fry if you were my own brother instead of Mr. Horton's. I was afraid of that, said Joe, wincing. I know you're a cop, Pat. Well, here goes. I didn't turn in until 5 a.m. this morning. I only shook myself out of the sheets about an hour ago. I had Gordon bring some brandy upstairs so that I could shake out some of the cobwebs from the lining of my skull. I didn't even go downstairs until I heard Chris howling. That had never happened before, so I decided it called for an investigation. Chris isn't given to loud noises. Okay, said Rayburn. Did you know her, Joe? Sure, said Joe, and Chris's heart did a nervous hop, skip, and jump. Then, astoundingly, the younger brother added, So did you, Pat. Where in hell did I know her? The detective asked. Joe immediately launched into a colorful description of a house party in somebody's lodge in the Lake District of Plymouth, which all three of them, Joe, Rayburn, and the Parker girl, had attended. It was too much for Chris. He got up and poured himself a double drink. I get her now, said Rayburn. She was the gal with the build. He made a gesture with both hands that caused Chris almost to choke on his drink. Well, somebody must have done it. How about it, Joe? Not me, said Joe. Hell, Lolly was my best bet for digging a few extra bucks out of the family exchequer. Sort of a red-headed goose, said Rayburn, chuckling. What about this great stone face of a butler of yours, then? Good God, no, said Joe. Gordon is part of the mausoleum. In fact, sometimes I get him confused with the place. They look alike. To his horror, Chris had to stifle a giggle. A mental comparison between Gordon and the facade of the house revealed unexpected similarities. 
I'd better get a load of him anyway, said Rayburn. Gordon was summoned and arrived, imperturbable as ever despite the addition of an upper-tier third wrinkle to the usual pair of horizontal lines in his forehead. Okay, Gordon, said Rayburn. Relax. You can be at home here. Despite his light touch, there was something about his forthrightness that suggested both ruthlessness and power. Did you let anyone else into this house before Mr. Horton, Mr. Christopher Horton, that is, came in this evening? No, sir, I did not, said Gordon. He hesitated, looked troubled. Well, what is it? For Christ's sake, open up, man. This is murder. A girl was stabbed to death downstairs, and we've got to find out who did it. The detective's manner had grown rough with anger. He seemed to loom bigger than he had on first appearance, and his presence dominated the room. Gordon looked increasingly distressed. I, well, he said, I did get the impression that I heard someone talking to her in the small living room downstairs. That was when I got the tray from the sideboard in the dining room to bring the brandy up here for Mr. Joe. That was about fifteen minutes before Mr. Christopher rang the bell. Swell, said Rayburn. His eyes gleamed almost like a cat's in the dark at the prospect of a new lead. Got any idea who it was? Hardly, sir, said Gordon, drawing himself up and pursing his mouth primly. I am not in the habit of listening at keyholes. From his delivery, it was obvious that the butler meant it. Rayburn ran anguished fingers through his dark brown hair and heaved a sigh of pain. For God's sake, he said, putting his face in his hands. I have to fall on my prat over an honest butler. Didn't it occur to you it might have been someone who didn't belong in this house? No, sir, said Gordon unhappily. I thought it was probably the young lady talking to herself in different voices until... until the body was found. Gordon added a fourth line to the wrinkles in his forehead as the detective loomed over him angrily. And, fond as he was of the old retainer, Chris couldn't blame Rayburn for being angry. Beat it, the sleuth snapped angrily before there's another murder and I take the rap for it. But I swear to heaven, he added, glancing at the butler's receding back, I wouldn't burn for it. If I ever ran into a case of justifiable homicide, that would be it. Gordon, said Joe, looking up at Rayburn over the top of his glass, is what is known in more vulgar circles as a character. I've wanted to kill him myself more than once. He's terrific at his job, but trying to get him to say anything is like pulling a bronze statue's teeth. That never occurred to me, said Chris, surprised. I guess I've been used to him too long or something. His voice faded out at the look of disgust both Joe and Rayburn hurled his way. He might, he reflected, be a man of stature downtown, but it didn't seem to rate him much respect here in the bosom of his own family. He wondered, disturbingly, whether he'd get so much attention on Devonshire Street if he hadn't inherited a bank of his own. It was not a pleasant thought. Well, somebody killed her, said Rayburn. He turned to the banker and studied him as if he were the label on a can of baked beans. I know enough about you to be sure that, even if you did the job, you'd have an alibi we'd have one hell of a time busting. Suppose you enlarge on that, Rayburn, said Chris. He was beginning to take a violent dislike to this brash young man who was backed by the authority of the Homicide Bureau on Berkeley Street. Rayburn just looked at him, then shrugged his heavy shoulders. You haven't much of a reputation for taking a chance, he said, then turned to Joe before Chris could think of any sort of a reply. As for you, you old son of a gun, if I have to burn you for this, I won't like it. You're a pal, but you could have been the voice Gordon heard in the downstairs living room. Sure I could have said Joe with a mocking grin. 
but you'll have one hell of a time making it stick, and you know it. Damn, said the detective, shaking his good-looking head. The limey who pulled that line about a policeman's lot being a happy one certainly knew what he was talking about. Chris was still boiling at the semi-contemptuous tone with which Rayburn had commented on his reputation. Damn it all, how could a banker take needless chances? He had other people's money to worry about. If he acted like a college sophomore on a goldfish-eating spree, he'd damage his bank's name and do irreparable harm to any number of perfectly innocent depositors. At the same time, he was a human being, not a statue hewn from stone adorning the facade of the Horton Bank. And human beings, as was well known, were prone to take all sorts of damn fool chances. It was a tough problem he had never felt called upon to face before. He wondered who could give him an answer, realized Pat and Joe were hard at it. The only thing wrong with this airtight case of yours, Pat, said Joe quietly, is that I didn't do it. Oh, a good prosecutor could cook up a number of motives. Unrequited love, jealousy, maybe a matter of money. But you'd know, and I'd know, they would all be false. I wish I were sure of that, said the detective, rubbing his chin. Joe studied him, eyes narrowed. So that's the way it's going to be, he said quietly. That's the way it's got to be, Joe, said Rayburn in cool tones. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from A Knife in My Back. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.